So continuing this evening with the story of the Buddha. But in order to continue with the story of the Buddha, we need to take a little detour to a friend of his, Mara. Mara appears throughout the suttas. He appears especially when someone's getting close to something, when there's some discovery or truth or understanding or some increase in concentration. Mara doesn't like concentration. It's understood that concentration is like putting a blindfold on Mara. He can't find you. So he likes to knock you off your path. So as the Buddha was practicing, as you may recall, he had been doing his ascetic practices. And Mara came to him. And this is what the Buddha said. As I strove to subdue myself beside the broad Naranjara, that's the river, absorbed unflinchingly to gain the true surcease of bondage here, Namuchi. Namuchi, it's the name of Mara. Namuchi came and spoke to me with words all garbed in pity thus. Oh, you are thin, you are pale, and you are in death's presence too. A thousand parts are pledged to death, but life still holds one part of you. Live, sir. Life is the better way. You can gain merit if you live. Come, live the holy life and pour libations on the holy fires, and thus a world of merit gain. What can you do by struggling now? The path of struggling, too, is rough and difficult and hard to bear. This is very classic language for Mara. Mara seems to know exactly how to niggle in there and tell you just how to not do what might lead you further on. And this is what Mara does. Mara has many names, literally the name Mara means the killer. And it's really, the names of Mara all mean whatever blocks the way. The tempter, the lord of death, the cousin of negligence. All of these are names of Mara, the exterminator. Namuchi one of Mara's more common names is a personification of death. And it's interesting to hear the story of where this name Namuchi comes from. Many times the Buddha would take existing names or stories and bring them in and use them in his teachings. So Manuchi was around from in the Vedic times and he was the holder back of the water 
holding back nourishment. And the way the myth goes is that Indra had to come and strike down Namuchi to release the rain. And so too, striking down Namuchi releases nourishment, brings us to the deepest nourishment. Here he's trying to hold back in that quote I read, holding back the Buddha from possibly contacting the deepest nourishment of Nibbana. Nimuchi, the god of death. Whenever we are in the world of samsara, the world of life and death, we are in Mara's realm. Anytime there's a birth, there is a death. A birth of self. Every time a self is here and arises, this is Mara's realm. And you can feel in this, whenever there's a birth of self, there's a possibility of death. You know that feeling that you have when you're sure you're right? I know I'm right about this. And you can feel the solidification of self. I know I've got this. I'm sure that the, you know, they made a mistake on the schedule. They really should have done it differently. I'm absolutely sure of this. I'm going to tolerate it, but I know I'm right. And you just hang on to it, whatever it is. And then there reaches this moment. This moment where there's like a little death. And you let go. And up until that moment of death, you're living under the realm. You're living in the kingdom of Mara. And then there's this little death that happens. You give up being right. And that sense of self dissolves. And there's a moment of freedom. Free of self. The activity of selfing, these thoughts in our mind, these stories we tell, These are the activity in the domain of Mara. Mara loves to make things difficult for holy people. As it's said, and that's the way it's phrased in the text. For anybody who's on the spiritual path, these are of particular concern to Mara. Because you might get out of his grip. He, he was very frustrated, Mara was, when the Buddha became enlightened. And he came to the Buddha and he said, You have forsaken the ascetic path, 
by which beings purify themselves. You are not pure. You fancy you are pure. The path of purity is far from you. Isn't that interesting? Mara comes to the Buddha after he's enlightened and says this. And the, Bu- and the Buddha says, I know these penances to gain the deathless, whatever kind they are, to be as vain as a ship's oars and rudder on dry land. But it is owing to development of virtue, concentration, understanding that I have reached enlightenment. And you, exterminator, another one of his names, have been vanquished now. Mara says, the blessed one knows me and slinks away. He does not like being recognized. And really, there's not even a Mara. There are many, many Maras. And in the text, it's often he. But Maras, he, she, they, many, individual. In fact, some traditions later say that the Buddha could have become a Mara or a Buddha. If he had been swayed, he would have become another Mara. And we each have our personal Maras. Have you noticed a few of yours? It's important to remember that these Maras are no more us, me, I, than any other arising. They are conditioned. This population of Maras is acquired over our lifetime. Sometimes you can hear their voice, their tone. Come in and tell you how to do things and you might go, yeah, thanks mom for the help, but I'm doing fine here. Or, oh, So, Dad, you have a comment on this, too. Thanks. These are our Maras. They come in having a view. Or maybe some spiritual ideal comes in. You're supposed to do it this way or that way. This personification of Mara, this making him into a being, is a wonderful... Uh, way in the suttas and in our practice that we can recognize that it's not me. It's not me. It, it, I've acquired this voice, this being, this opinion, this view, this belief. But it's no more mine than this body, this emotion, than anything else that comes through. One of Mara's particularly repeating uh, manifestations in the studa is that of the, of the tempter. He likes to tempt us. 
particularly with unskillful behavior, and really sees a way in whenever there's some sort of moral conflict or some opportunity to sort of shirk, not work so hard, indolence, all of those. And in some ways, our practice is just this recognition again and again of Mara. Go, oh yeah, there you are. One of the phrases that comes in again and again in the suttas is, I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara. And when we see Mara, it's like Indra vanquishing Mara, and the floods are released. The nourishment is there. You know those moments when all of a sudden you see what's happening? And it just doesn't have the hold over you anymore. Like even like doubt is there and strong and it you're sure. And then you go, Oh, this is doubt. And it no long Mara no longer has the same grip. One of the ways Mara also expresses and shows up is as an expressor of limits, ways we're hemming us in. And these can be embedded in our, in life, in our societal, in our personal views. It's often, in a certain way, can flatten us, suffocate us. The internalized shoulds. So in the suttas, Mara not only shows up for the Buddha, but shows up for other practitioners. So there's a nun, Soma, who has, goes into the woods to practice. And Mara sees her there. And he comes to her, trying to knock her off her practice, and says, That which can be attained by seers, the place so hard to arrive at, women are not able to reach since they lack sufficient wisdom. Soma replies, What difference does being a woman make when the mind is well composed, when knowledge is proceeding on, when one rightly sees into Dhamma? Indeed, for whom the question arises, am I a man or a woman, or am I even something at all? To them alone is Mara fit to talk. So sometimes Mara tell, shows up and tells us whatever, whatever class of beings we are, that somehow we can't be enlightened. So clear. Absolutely. I see you, Mara. One of the interesting things about Mara is once we see Mara, we realize that in a certain subtle way, Mara is an aid on our path. Because when we see Mara, we see what's in the way. 
what's blocking us in that moment. We make contact with the self-view that's present there, the sakya ditti, self-view. Also, Mara tends to show up when we're right on the edge of an understanding, when we're right up rubbing against close to something. And so if we realize this, if we notice this tendency, we can go, oh, you're showing up now. Hmm, could be an interesting moment. I'm not, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to stay steady in my practice. This Mara can be very, very gross, you know, very uh, big and, you know, oh, you should get up from sitting. I know it's the middle of the sit, but you're really bored with this and it's really time to go. Yeah, okay. We, we see that, Mara. I know you. But it also can be very subtle. Just the subtle way we hold a limitation. I don't sit longer than 45 minutes. The bell's rung, it's time to go. Well, what if I did? Sometimes you can just sort of ask, are you Mara? Have you come to visit me? The Buddha is often having conversations with Mara. They, give, they have stanzas of conversation back and forth where the Mara tries to sway him all the way along. And it's important to recognize this, that we don't do a final vanquishing of Mara. It's about developing this relationship, about the conversation we have. So Mara has squadrons, some of which I've been naming, but a whole army of ways that he appears. And the Buddha names these squadrons of Mara. So I'll read you how the Buddha describes. He says, your first squadron is sense desire. Your second is called boredom. Then hunger and thirst compose the third, and craving is the fourth in rank. The fifth is sloth and acidity, while cowardice lines up as sixth. Uncertainty is seventh. The eighth is malice paired with obstinacy. Gain, honor, and renown besides an ill-won notoriety, self-praise, and denigrating others. These are your your squadrons, Namuchi. So that was a lot to take in. I think I'll slow down there and describe some of these squadrons of Mara. So the first one is the squadron of sense desire. 
And we know this one. It's deeply entrenched, our habituated desire for comfort and entertainment. This one's such a strong squadron. It's also, Mara has three daughters. And one of them is Raga, which is also Lobho, for those of you, which is a daughter of Mara. Greed, lust, translated. All the external pleasures. John spoke about these in the hindrances, and you hear them coming out again and again because they're so seductive. One of the conversations Mara and the Buddha have, the Mara comes and says, oh, you are bound by every shackle, whether human or divine. The bonds that tie you down are strong, and you shall not escape me, monk. And the Buddha says, I am without desire for sights, sounds, tastes, and smells, and things to touch however good they seem, and you are vanquished now. Sense desires, this first of his. The second one is boredom. You might have had a visit or two, and maybe in the coming weeks he might come back in this form. And this is also related to a second of his daughters, Arati, which is discontent, which is another translation of the word that we can translate as boredom. Boredom or discontent. The opposite of this contentment we've been talking about. This ease and contentment, a sense of sufficiency. opposite of everything I need is already here. One of the ways this shows up that you might notice, it's kind of, can be quite subtle, is something should be happening now. You get all quiet and content. There's clarity. Something should be, something else should be happening now. Sometimes it's like you noticed a little like internal meditation guide. Like you're sitting there, you're just, oh, maybe you should do a little metta now. Oh, no, back to the breath. That would probably be better. Oh, yeah, tension's a little scattered, aren't you? Okay, okay. Well, what was it they said to do this morning? Vedna. Let's do a little Vedna. About this time in the retreat, there's all these instructions. Quite an invitation for Mara to come strolling through the room, saying, yeah, try this, try that. Whatever you're doing, it's not the right thing. (laughs) Right. I see you, Mara. I see you. This will be just fine. Whatever I'm doing, I'll just carry on. And it's funny, you'll notice that it feels like Mara 
has a little wisdom in there, telling you what it is you're supposed to be listening to, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I need to know what I'm doing. It's like Mara knows how just to find the weakness. Recognize that. Stay steady. A place Mara does this a lot is in that place of hunger and thirst. Compose the third. So we have this need built into the organism that we are, this need to eat, this need to drink. There are other needs as well. And the Buddha tried rejecting this fully. Rejecting the need to eat. And realized this was not the way. And yet to indulge is not useful either. How do we find our way? I remember uh, many years ago I was in grad school and it was my um, uh, tradition I had to go to the desert annually and go backpacking during spring break. And as part of that I would fast and uh, one year, a couple of friends of mine, a couple of lean guys, decided to come with me. And they were like, oh, this fasting thing, that sounds interesting. Okay, we'll try that too. It's like, oh, okay, whatever. And we were backpacking, so it meant they just didn't bring much, they didn't really bring any food. Oh my goodness, did they suffer. And um, at the end of it, Then they suffered because they ate so much. So double suffering. But the thing that they said, that they discovered then, that made a difference, was they realized when they had the idea that they needed to eat the next meal, they knew that they had gone days without eating. And that even though days wasn't a good idea, that they were okay. They no no longer were caught in that. I think this is part of the um, intention or one of the benefits with the eight precepts when it works for you. Is there a way you break that cycle of thinking, I need this. And yet, you don't need to fast for days. It's just trying to find this balance so that we're not chasing after it being neither an ascetic nor indulgent. And Mara often shows up wherever we have confusion about that. You know, it's like, well, should I go have dinner? I'm not hungry, though. But if I don't eat, what will happen? And all of a sudden we find ourselves in this little spin, not knowing what to do, caught. This comes up, too, in other aspects of our lives, in our desire for love and connection, to feel that. Sometimes on retreat, people have the experience of everything falling away, all this self, all this attachment, and they say, gosh, do I need to like go home and split up with my partner and sell my home and, you know, let go of everything? 
not necessarily recommended. Letting go of the attachment that there are things that we need, but we don't need to be attached to them. Shelter, food, connection, community. These, this aspect comes in particularly strong. We get taunted there with that halt, hungry, angry, t- uh, lonely, and tired. Have you noticed that at certain points when your practice is kind of lagging and you're, then all of a sudden there's this susceptibility? I'm sure I need a cup of tea right now. And what it really is is that you're tired. So the Buddha came to another nun, Sister Gotami, and taunted her with this, her history, with her care for those around that she had loved, because she had lost her sons. She said, Mara says to her, Why, with your sons killed, do you sit all alone, your face in tears, all alone, immersed in the midst of the forest? Are you looking for a man? And Mara, she notices him and sees him and sees that he's trying to arouse fear and terror and make me fall from my concentration. And she responds, I've gotten past the killing of my sons, have made that the end to my search for men. I don't grieve, I don't weep. I am not afraid of you, my friend. It's everywhere destroyed, delight. The mass of oppression is shattered. Having defeated the army of death, free of fermentations, I dwell. No longer caught. I am not afraid of you, my friend. Craving is the fourth in rank in this list. Another daughter, Tanha. And we know we've talked a lot about craving, and you know quite a bit. So I'm not going to dwell on craving, but you certainly Mara shows up there. And the fifth is sloth and torpor. And this one is not just that sluggishness and laziness, not just sleepiness, but also an immobility, a numbness, a peaceful dullness. Have you noticed that sometimes, that you're going along in your practice and there's this, like it gets kind of quiet and peaceful and it's a little bit hazy and it feels kind of nice, but there's not much clarity. Sometimes it's talked about that Mara is 
a god in the god realms, putting us to sleep with the pleasant. Ruling over that, mm, that realm of enchantment. But Mara can also show up on the flip side of this, trying to push us, that, that one who tries to make us strive. So the Buddha once was taking a rest because he had a, I'll read what it's from the sutta. The blessed one's foot had been hurt by a splinter. He suffered severe bodily feelings that were painful, sharp, racking, harsh, disagreeable, and unpleasant. It's quite a splinter. I think he had an infection, but they didn't know the name of it. Mindful and fully aware, he bore them without vexation, and spreading out his cloak of patches folded in four, he lay down on his right side in the lion's sleeping pose with one foot overlapping the other, mindful and fully aware. Ah, but Mara sees an opportunity. Mara came to him and addressed him, What? Are you stupefied that you lie down? Or else entranced by some poetic flight? Are there not many more? Are are there not many aims you still must serve? Why do you dream away intent on sleep, alone in your secluded dwelling place? You notice that? You're just taking care of this body, taking care of this mind. And this voice comes in and says, that's not okay. You should work harder. What do you mean? How dare you take a nap? So simple. And the Buddha says, I am not stupefied that I lie down nor yet entranced by some poetic flight. My aim is reached and sorrow left behind. I sleep out of compassion for all beings, alone in my secluded dwelling place. I sleep out of compassion for all beings. He's included in the compassion, included himself for the benefit of all. So another squadron of Mara, cowardice, the fear and terror. Once the Buddha, the Mara came, Mara can do many things. Mara is a trickster in that way. 
Mara came to him and wanted to frighten him and make his hair stand up. And so the Mara took the form of a huge royal Naga serpent and approached the Blessed One. His body was as big as a boat made of a single tree trunk. His hood was as broad as a brewer's mat. His eyes were as big as Kosalin brass plates. His tongue flickered in and out of his mouth like forked lightning in and out of a thundercloud. The sound of his breathing was like the sound of the smith's bellows blowing. Buddha wasn't fooled. A hermit, perfect in restraint, lives out his life in lonely haunts. There he should live who has renounced, for that is right for him and for his like. Many are the wild beasts, many the terrors, many the biting flies and crawling things. Yet when a sage is trained in the wilderness, nothing of that can make his hair stand up. Though the sky may split, though the earth may quake, though beings all feel affright, through men may drive a dagger, though men may drive a dagger in his breast, no wakened one will ever turn for help to worldly things, the essential things of existence. Mara bummed once again, gave it his best shot, sad and disappointed. He left again. This fear, though, some of us, it takes a little bit more. We're not so um, quick as the Buddha. So I mentioned this the other night, so I want to read you a little bit of a story from Ajahn Chah, his confrontation with fear. And Ajahn Chah decided he was going to confront his fear, so he went to the charnel grounds, went to the places where bodies are taken, buried or burned, and vowed to spend several nights there. So he went there and he said, I was afraid, but I dared. It's not that I wasn't afraid, but I had courage. In the end, you die anyway. Sort of a little bravado at the beginning. Well, just as it was getting dark, I had my chance. In they came carrying a corpse, just my luck. I couldn't even feel my feet touch the ground. I wanted to get out of there so badly. And they wanted him to do some funeral rites. And he's like, oh my God, no. I'm like, I'm barely hanging on here. So he gets all ready and to spend the night. And he says, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. If you've never dared to do this, you don't know what it feels like, he says. I closed my eyes and refused to open them. I'll die with my eyes closed, he said. So, oh, I know what happened. It's on the back. So, oh, I'll just sit here. Oh, let it die. I'll just sit here anyway. One is born in this life only to die. So as the sun was sinking, he's sitting. He says, I didn't want to do any walking meditation. I only wanted to get into my net. 
Whenever I tried to walk towards the grave, it was as if something was pulling me back from behind to stop me from walking. It was as if my feelings of fear and courage were having a tug of war with me. So I got into my mosquito net. I crawled in. I dozed a little. I sat. Yes, I was scared. And yet I did it. I sat through the night. And then when day broke, he says... Oh, I've survived. I did it. I'm so glad. Oh, there's nothing to it. It's just my own fear. That's all. And then he's planning to spend another night. And he's thinking, oh, tonight it'll be easy. I've already been through one. And then he sees that they're bringing another corpse. thought, oh, that's good. And then they bring in a corpse to burn. Ah, that will help my practice, he says. So they burn the body, and again he gets scared, and he sees, sits near it, and he can't go any closer. I forgot about sleep. I couldn't even think of it. My eyes were fixed, rigid with fear, and there was nobody to turn to. There was only me. Well, I'll sit here and die, sit and die here. I'm not moving from this spot. Now it's about 10 p.m. I was sitting with my back to the fire. I didn't know what it was, but there came a sound shuffling from the fire behind me. Had the coffin just collapsed? Or maybe a dog was getting the corpse? But no, it sounded more like a buffalo walking steadily around. Oh, never mind. But then it started walking towards me, just like a person. It walked towards me with heavy steps, walked around me. And then it was all quiet, and I just sat there. I couldn't open my eyes. It seemed like it was coming right at me. It was going to run me over. I closed my eyes and refused to open them. I'll die with my eyes closed. Got closer and closer. Oh, this was really it. I threw out everything. I forgot all about Budo, Dharma, Sangha. I forgot everything else. There was only the fear in me, stacked in full to the brim. My thoughts couldn't go anywhere else. There was only fear. From the day I was born, I had never experienced such fear. Budo and Dharma? They had gone. I don't know where. There was only this fear welling up inside my chest until it felt like a tightly stretched drumskin. Well, I'll just leave it as it is. There's nothing else to do. I sat as if I wasn't even touching the ground and simply noted what was going on. The fear was so great that it filled me like a jar completely filled with water. And then a voice What am I so afraid of anyway? I'm afraid of death, another voice answered. Well then, where is this thing, death? Why all the panic? Where is death? Why death is within me. If death is within you, then where are you going to run to escape it? Can you see he's having a conversation with Mara? 
If you run away, you die. If you stay here, you die. Wherever you go, it goes with you because death lies within you. There's nowhere you can run to. Whether you are afraid or not, you die just the same. There's nowhere to escape death. As soon as I thought this, my perception seemed to change right around. The fe- all the fear completely disappeared as easily as turning over one's hand. It was truly amazing. Non-fear arose in its place. And he continues through the night, sitting unmoving in rain and crying and here and there but no longer swayed by Mara. Fear often shows up just before we move into completely unfamiliar terrain, the place of non-fear release of greed, aversion, and delusion. Notice fear when it comes. Let it be your harbinger. Well, there's an important next one of Mara's squadrons, uncertainty. Indecision, vacillation, doubt, not knowing what is useful, what to do, ambivalence. I've often thought I should put a sign on my fridge because I, whenever I don't really know quite what to do next or I get confused, I notice I'm standing in front of the fridge needs to have a big sign on it says, I see you, Mara. A lot of times we have the idea that we should know what to do, that we're supposed to know. What if we don't know? The idea that we should know is also one of Mara's things. Mara likes to throw out imponderable questions like this one to the nun Vajira. By whom has this being been created? Where is the maker of the being? Where has the being arisen? Where does the being cease? And the Bukuni Vajira, she said, ah, this is Mara. Why now do you assume a being? Mara, Have you grasped a view? This is a heap of sheer fabrications. Here no being is found. Just as with an assemblage of parts the word chariot is used, so when the aggregates are present, there's the convention a being. It's only suffering that comes to be, suffering that stands and falls away. Nothing but suffering comes to be, Nothing but suffering ceases. And so Mara slinks away. We can get so caught in some 
questions. Should I do it this way? Is that the way it should be done? Putting great importance in some metaphysical question or some idea, some should. We have so many choices, so many ways to get caught. Part of the wonderful frame of retreat is this external discipline, the simplicity of the schedule. No reason to get caught in the shoulds. What do I do now? Simplicity. This can continue, this an aspect of this continues in the next one, our stubbornness and obstinacy. Our doing, well, I'll just read this. St. Paul, the letter to the Romans, he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do do. For I have the desire to do what is good but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do what I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is Mara, I put in Mara, Mara living in me that does it. We get ourselves all twisted up and continuing these patterns. One of the ways we continue and we support Mara is in our comparing mind this self-praise or denigrating of others, as it's called, puffing up with pride, realizing that every time we puff up, it also means that there's another side. Every time you have a good sit, it's a setup. It means you're going to have a bad sit. Each judgment, whether positive or negative, sets up an opposition. More than, less than, or equal to. These are all conceit. The comparing mind. Learning how to skillfully evaluate our practice without judging it. At the end of your sit, It can be quite, as we dedicate the merit from our sit, we can also notice, how did it go? What did I try? What was skillful here? Did I give it a good effort? Is there anything I learned? This might be helpful.
but not to compare it or label it, but perhaps to learn. Every place we fall back into the me that is compared to that, the me that I create. This is the Mara. There's a wonderful Tenzin Palma, wonderful um, nun and teacher. She once said, the I, the ego, doesn't care whether you're happy or sad. All it wants to do is feel its me-ness. Just want to feel the me. Notice as the sense of self arises, creates the I, and notice it. These are the squadrons of Mara. So later on, Mara comes back to the Buddha after he'd been many years, seven years later. This is, he doesn't, this isn't the last time he comes, but this is one of the times. He says, for seven years I've dogged the Blessed One's steps, but haven't gained an opening in the one self-awakened and glorious. A crow circled a stone, the color of fat. Maybe I found something tender here. Maybe there's something delicious. But not getting anything delicious there, the crow went away, like the crow attacking the rock. I weary myself with Gautama. As he was overcome with sorrow, his loot fell from under his arm. Then he, the despondent spirit, right there, disappeared. So I'd like to end with our own more modern version of a poem from uh, Dana Fouds, our own more modern Maras, called Awakening Now. Why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells, prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid. And my motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect. And surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. 
Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara. Let's sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.